Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Missed you. Haven't done shows in a while. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Thank you so much for giving us the most important thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about some things that really matter, give you good information to try to better discern these crazy times we find ourselves living in. We hope wherever you and yours are, you are well. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been extremely busy. I've had to do multiple long-distance trips. Uh, I now have three of my four children in three different states, part of the fun of growing up. My youngest turned 16 here in a couple of days. Strange time of life keeps us busy. So sorry we haven't been doing as many shows as usual. We'll get back in the normal stream. We've got some wonderful interviews recorded, uh, including... On today's program, we're going to talk a little economics with our old friend Alexander Saunders back on the program. We're going to talk about school book censorship and some legislation and litigation action around that. We're going to use Texas with Jill Jacobson on the program here in just a little bit. Uh, also, a great story about a Marine making good and making a college football team. Uh, talk about that at the end of the program. Also, my annual rant for hurricane season about not putting reporters out in bad weather. Talk about that in a minute. Let's start here, though. Uh, this is the... Um, Special time of the year if you're a sports fan because football's back. Uh, college has played a few games, but really this is the first weekend of college. NFL will start up next week. I've got to admit something to you. I have a little bit of trouble not watching sports. In fact, I've been watching more sports than ever. I've been more into this baseball season than I have been in a long time, and not just because the Reds are actually good for a change of pace. Um, I've just enjoyed the escape that sports gives Saturday mornings, I, Sunday mornings, Saturday mornings, usually watch some soccer from overseas, um, football on NFL on Sundays. Of course, I enjoy sports as an escape. What I've not enjoyed lately is sports media and sports fandom. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is social media makes everything bigger, louder, faster, stronger, and it has brought out a lot of the worst inclinations of things in sports fans. Um, the rise in betting. And if you bet, fine, please do it responsibly. I don't gamble. Uh, I'm not into gambling. I don't see a point in gambling. Sports and gambling are exhortably linked now, and they're getting louder and louder, especially on things like social media. And the sports coverage has just gotten super heavy on fantasy and gambling, and I don't care, and I don't want to hear about it. But sports fans have a, the same problem that political fans do. And frankly, fandom is one of the biggest problems in our politics. When you take a big picture look and step back, you know, a fan at a game can really ruin your in-game experience. We've all been to a game or a concert or something where the one guy or the one woman or whoever got a little too drunk and ruined it for everybody else because they're just too into it. Or they want to start picking fights. Or they just want to yell nonstop regardless of what's going on. And they ruin the experience for everybody else. 
this is really taking shape in politics lately. I've had a couple interesting conversations with folks across the political spectrum, by the way, where they're like, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. And they don't mean politics. They're still going to go vote. It doesn't mean they don't watch the news or keep up. They don't engage in the discourse anymore because you've got that drunken fan that's going to yell about the ref or they're going to yell at the other team or they're going to make a fool of themselves, except it's politics instead of a sports stadium or instead of a sports team. Problem with fandom is these conversations I've had, people are like, well, these people with this political label don't actually believe what they say they believe anymore. Well, that's where fandom comes in. All of a sudden, your quarterback is the best quarterback ever, no matter whether he's any good or not, because he's on your team. Your ideology starts suffering. Your principles start suffering. The things you would never normally do on the street, you get a couple drinks in you at the stadium and you're dander gets up and the passion starts flowing and the bands are playing and the music's playing and the game's going and there's 70,000 people screaming all of a sudden you forget how to act that's what's happening a lot in our politics now famdom is really hurting our political process because here's the problem i had a troll get after me on social media a while back and it doesn't really bother me because it happens a lot but i subtweeted them and i put it out and i said listen it is not my job to be a fan of any politician, candidate, or office holder. Even the ones I vote for, I'm not their fan. They work for us. We don't work for them. And if you're a fan, the dynamic is backwards. Now you have to do things for them. Now you feel like you have to defend them when they're not defensible. Now you feel like you have to give them money and buy their merchandise like you do a sports team. It completely skews your perspective on what's actually going on in the world. You have to be able to hold these people accountable because they have immense power and they have power over your life and they have power over the finances of our country. Not the least of which is they represent us. And if you vote in support for these people, people are going to judge you for it. I'm sorry, but free speech does not mean you don't get to get criticized if you support somebody who turns out to be really bad at the office or a really bad human being in how they personally conduct themselves. People judge you for it and they have a right to because you put your name on it. Sports fans and political fans both sometimes have the same problem. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But if it starts bringing out the worst impulses in you, and you start becoming a slave to the team or the player or whatever, where you can no longer objectively understand what's really going on, that no, your team really isn't good, the refs aren't screwing you, your quarterback just can't throw an out route. Or, no, you're heavily penalized because your coach doesn't keep your team disciplined. Or there's corruption and you can't call it out because it's on your side, so all you can do is yell about the corruption on the other side, which doesn't make your corruption any better, even if it's true. See how this all works? Don't be a fan. Your job as a citizen of the United States of America is not to be a fan of anything. It's to be a citizen of the country, to think about what's come before, what you've been entrusted to now, and what you're going to leave after you're gone. And if you can't do that, then the problem is not the system, and it's not your opposing political enemies, and it's not anything going on in the media, and it's not anything wrong with the other guy. The problem is you not being the proper citizen you need to be. If everybody starts with holding up their ends as citizens and stops being fans, we'd fix a lot of this mess in a big old hurry. Problem is, like controversy, like yelling sports, talking heads, like the controversies that surround sports. Political fans like all that part. The political mess in a representative democracy 
we get usually what we deserve. And we are saying by our actions, we like this current hot mess. Shame on us. We should do a whole lot better. More Hertel right after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We haven't talked to our friend Alex Salter in a while. Glad to have him back. He's one of these economists, fellas. He's going to explain all those big numbers and data sets and unexpectedly to us. So good that even I can understand it. How are you, sir? Good to see you again. Doing great. Thanks for having me back. You got a book out. We'll get to it in just a minute. But I always ask our economist friends around there on the show. I'm going to ask you because we hadn't seen you in a while. Why can't we talk about this economy? Because the experts are saying it one way, the news media covers it one way. A lot of folks are still hurting with inflation. We just had a data set came out that the average family is spending about, give or take, about $700 more right now than they did this time a year ago. The media talks about it one way. The economists talk about it one way. The politics. Why can't everybody get on the same page about this economy? It is a little complicated and a little unusual, but shouldn't we be able to at least talk about it a little better than what we're doing? Yeah, it's unfortunate when political spin takes precedence over economic analysis of the fundamentals, which is unfortunately what is happening. I look at the economy right now, and I'm glad that inflation seems to be coming down, and it's doing so in a way that does not portend a great deal of economic harm. I'm looking at a fundamentally, I won't say strong, but robust economy in the sense that I don't think that we have a recession coming up. I'm pleased that the Federal Reserve is doing what's needed to do to bring inflation back down, although we can only give them so much credit since they made the mess in the first place. Now, you can acknowledge those successes without trumpeting the line that everything is great. This is one of the strongest economies we've ever had. Families are doing fantastic. No, they aren't. They're starting to recover to the point where things were about two years ago in terms of purchasing power, and that's a good thing. But let's not pretend that this is not something that had to happen. It did not have to happen. We could have fought the economic fallout from the pandemic without creating massive inflation and burdening working families. And so I think that that's something that various officials elected or appointed ultimately have to own. You hit something really important there that I want to make sure we don't skip over because we all say it. I'm guilty of it. The economists on TV doing talking head and do it a lot. You mentioned fundamentals just for folks that are trying to keep up when they're looking at a headline or they're looking at a newspaper piece or whatever the case may be. People always mention the fundamentals, but just for the average person trying to be informed on the economy, what's the fundamentals they should actually work at? Give us that nomenclature and a couple of the things they should be digging out of all those headlines and all those charts and graphs to actually pay attention to, because I think that's an important way to understand this. Sure. So I think the first two things you want to look at are the unemployment rate and the rate of economic growth. That's where most economists will start when they're trying to figure out how's the economy doing right now? What's it likely to do in the short to medium run? Unemployment looks pretty strong, 
3.5%. That's near historic lows. The economy itself, in terms of inflation-adjusted growth, right? you can't just count dollars because what a dollar is isn't constant. You flood the market with dollars, and dollars become less valuable. But if you adjust that, if you look at goods and services produced, cars, laptops, air travel, clothes, food, shelter, all that stuff, the economy is growing at roughly 2% per year. And that's not amazing by historic standards, but neither is it bad. It's certainly not shrinking. We might wish that we had faster growth, and I think that there are some policies that we could embrace that would result in faster growth. But on the whole, I think it's encouraging that the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, has managed to bring down inflation without unduly burdening the economy. Now, there have been burdens, don't get me wrong. Real wages, inflation-adjusted wages, have only just now caught up with inflation. Most families for the last two years, as you notice, have taken a pay cut. And that's something that they have legitimate cause to be angry about. Nonetheless, you could have easily foreseen a situation where fiscal and monetary policy were much worse than they actually were. And instead of bringing inflation down gently, we just crashed the economy. And that would have been far worse. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. Here's the thing about that, and you just mentioned it in passing. Here again, we're talking about these things the post-COVID economy changed people's perception of the economy, especially things like the service sector, especially things like how the politicians talk about the economy, how they can control it, but they also claim they don't control it and these sorts of things. How do we parse through that? Because people got an educational and economics that was somewhat unique in COVID and now in the post-COVID return. I'm not sure anybody really fully understands it though. Is that a fair way to kind of lay out part of the problem right now? I think the most important lesson from the pandemic is it's a vindication of elementary economics, the fundamentals that we were talking about. Take all the pandemic policies, the post-pandemic policies, what do they amount to? On the one hand, you're constricting the supply side of the economy, stay-at-home orders, lockdown, social distancing, all that stuff. You're making it more difficult to produce and distribute goods and services. At the same time that you're restricting supply, policies are stimulating demand direct checks from the federal government, extremely accommodative monetary policy by the Federal Reserve, printing up new money to buy government bonds, basically. Well, if you reduce supply and boost demand at the same time, what's going to happen to prices? Up, up, up they go. This is exactly what you're going to get in any introductory economics class in the country. This is not something that should surprise us, and we should have seen it coming. More economists should have been sounding the alarm about this. So in one sense, the damage, the harm that it's imposed on families is not obviously something that we should welcome. On the other hand, the silver lining is we understand that we have the toolkits to talk about this and talk about this intelligently. We don't need to throw out the playbook. Everything old is new again. Yeah, Alexander Salter, let's talk about the political side of economics for just a second, because we've been talking about recession. We may probably won't have one now, or at least we're hoping we're not going to have one. Do we in the news media and the folks, do we overly obsess over recession? Because it is bad, but in the modern era, the spectrum of Jimmy Carter and stagflation and all that, that's a thing. You know, Barack Obama rode into office off the 2008 economic trouble. Politicians are scared to death of the R word. Do we overfocus? Has it become kind of like the unemployment number where we just talk about recession, unemployment, we skip all the rest of economics and don't get a full, complete picture? Because it kind of feels like right now it's like recession or not recession, but there's a lot more to talk about than just that part of it, even though we all understand a recession would be bad. There is more to talk about, and I'm glad that you brought that up. 
to answer the first question, the reason that the politicians care so much is because there's a lot of good data out there showing that voters basically vote their current economic circumstances. And so if the economy is in the doldrums when it comes election time, that's probably a sign that the incumbents are going to get kicked out and new people are going to come in. So obviously no politician wants that to happen on their watch. But in terms of getting deeper than the unemployment numbers, there are some troubling trends that might cast that unemployment number in not so good a light. For example, the labor force participation rate, basically the fraction of the working age population that's even in the labor force looking for a job, that's gone down significantly since the pandemic. Rise in disabilities, people who are claiming disabilities and are therefore not in the labor force, that's sharply risen since the pandemic. So you do have some of these long-term trends that suggest, okay, unemployment is very low, but that might be because we're sampling among a group of people that are already in the labor force looking for a job doing okay. What about all the people who are no longer in the labor force, but by historical standards, quote unquote, should be? That's also a sign of economic health or lack thereof. And we do need to pay attention to these longer term trends. Now, those longer term trends aren't so much about recessions and depressions or expansions or anything like that. They're more about can the economy continue to grow sustainably over the long run? And that's not as sexy a topic. It doesn't grab headlines in the same way as recessions do. But if you care about the economic viability of the nation, I think that that's where your primary attention has to be. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. This kind of gets us into the new book you have, The, polit the Political Economy of Distributionism. I want to start with this part of it, though, and you mentioned it in the blurb as you explain the book, though, is there's economic theory and there's economic practicality, just like any other you know, discipline. One thing you bring up here, and this is a good way to intro what you're doing with the book, is things we talk about. We've talked about this with industrial policy a lot. We're trying to apply industrial policy to big tech, and it doesn't fit perfectly, but there's some principles there, and we got to kind of adjust. There's economic theories, and you talk about, of course, distributionism here that aren't new but we need to kind of revise them and revisit them to the new economy that we currently have and we need to kind of look at it that way just kind of explain the nomenclature distributionism but how you're kind of taking this not new idea but trying to apply it to the new what we're dealing with now in the year of our lord 2023 writing the political economy of distributism was a lot of fun and i'm glad to talk about that for a little bit so the distinction that you raise that i make in the book is the important difference between the science of economics and the art of political economy. So here's what I mean by that distinction. We can speak in a value-free way about the way that the economy works. As the price of bread falls, all else being equal, people are going to buy more bread. That is a scientific proposition about human behavior. Whatever the true moral theory of the world is, the demand curve for bread is going to slope down in that world. That's what I mean by the science of economics, the causal relationships among variables that we care about that explain and render intelligible human decision-making. And we need economic science because you can't analyze the economy without a scientific perspective of human behavior under conditions of scarcity. But just because you need economics does not mean that economics by itself is going to help you analyze what makes for a good society. You also need what I call the art of political economy in which you're willing to debate, not just whether the strategies that you've chosen can help you achieve your goals, but are your goals worthy of achieving in the first place? Do you have good goals? Do we have good social values? How do we weight these trade-offs when we bring in moral considerations? The analogy that I like to use is medicine. 
So obviously medicine is a scientific discipline, but the reason that doctors get involved in medicine in the first place is because they have a deep moral commitment to promoting health and happiness in human persons. Now you can't promote health and happiness without doing value-free scientific medicine, but the science is for the purpose of this broader ethical goal, human flourishing. So we need to understand the domain of scientific economics, the domain of artful political economy and how to understand the bridge between the two. Because if we don't get both of those parts right, we're gonna get trapped in this partisan doom loop that we currently have going on right now and we're never going to actually have meaningful public deliberation about the foundations of a good society. Salter joining us. You call it ethical. Its first cousin is rights. Economics, if you're going to talk about ethical economics, there's some basic rights, right? Right to private property, right to, you know, you know, we, we over abuse the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of economic well-being, those two things are pretty well entangled, at least in my opinion. You can give me yours. Do we need to have some basic understanding of economic ethics and economic rights, not just the American system, but just in, you know, those basic human principle kind of things like you have a right to earn, you have a right to get what's yours, and then you have a right to keep it and use it mostly as you see fit within the way. I don't know that we've done a good job just on a basic level of explaining that building block before we jump to things like the unemployment rate or economics or distribution or socialism or capitalism. We like to use those big words. We skip over that basic part, and I think we miss a lot that way, don't we? I think we do. If we're starting with first principles, we, especially as Americans, have to start with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like you just said. Now, it's important to note that the founders did not mean by the pursuit of happiness uh, subjective mental satisfaction. To them, happiness cons consisted of the objective parts of a well-lived human life. It was about human flourishing as human beings were meant to live and flourish, to be able to work, own property, exchange, enrich yourself culturally through the arts, uh, to have a community and participate in a community. These are all substantive moral goods that are essential to a life worth living, and we can and should defend them. So you're right. We need to have a basic vision of what kind of society we want to be and what kind of rights we do proclaim. We need to decide whether those rights are universal and natural, which rights are communal and conditional, which ones can be abridged, which ones are absolutely non-negotiable. We need to get that stuff right. Otherwise, no amount of economic analysis is going to help us figure out how to build the kind of society that we want to live in. Because again, economics can really tell you if you want, for example, uh, a low unemployment rate, you should do XYZ policies. If you want to make sure that you're getting people to work, you should do ABC policies. Now, that all seems pretty basic, but it can't answer the question of, should you want those things? What kinds of markets should we want to have? Are there some goods and services that it's simply wrong to exchange? Are there, are there some things that we simply shouldn't put a price on? Economics as a science can't answer that. You have to turn to moral philosophy. And the integration of economics and moral philosophy is what I mean by the art of political economy. This is not a foreign thing to economics. Once upon a time, economics as a discipline, when it was situated in universities, was actually housed in the Department of Moral Philosophy. Adam Smith, the godfather of modern economics and one of the great defenders of uh, early modern capitalism, was himself a moral philosopher by training. 
There's a reason for that. We need to recover this humanistic definition and scope of economics and ultimately remember what it's for. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. Let's talk about that philosophy of economics for just a second, though, because uh, I am not a philosophy major or an economic major, and I'm not even really good at math. My kids will tell you anytime, you know, we were doing Scrabble the other night, and my daughter's just mocking me openly for my word choice and my addition on the score. But here's the thing. Just on a basic, my limited understanding, I like to be an all the above guy as much as I can be. I want to be a rise all boats kind of guy, especially when it comes to the economy. I want the most freedom possible. I want the most opportunity possible. So I've got a problem with socialism. I think it doesn't raise the floor. I think it drops the ceiling and then you end up with two tiers pretty quickly as history tells us. I also understand capitalism is a better system than that, but it's also an imperfect system that needs some guardrails because it feeds into human nature and you can feed too much into human nature and you get into trouble. How do we talk about the philosophy like that, that I think most people think somewhere along those lines of, of course, everybody wants theirs and everybody wants their family and them to do well. I think most normal good people just want everybody to do as well as they possibly can. How do we bring down that philosophy level down to folks that just think that and maybe don't know all the details, but go, hey, we just want an economy that works for everybody. Because most people will say that and then the divergence comes in how you get that and then the problems comes with how you get that. Is that kind of a fair way to lay out the big picture of all this? I think so. And it's true that when it, you go to broad ethical values, uh, I think that there's a lot more overlap on those things as it pertains to the economy than is frequently believed. The devil's in the details, right? We disagree massively about how we actually achieve those goals that we have in common, which is of course why you need economics in the first place, because economics is the discipline that helps us sort out those claims. Right. Take one of the things that we always talk about with our with our principles of economic students, the economics of the minimum wage. Is it the case that we can sustainably increase the well-being, the material well-being of the least among us by increasing the minimum wage? Well, that's going to depend on a trade off, because on the one hand, if you raise the minimum wage, people who are working and can work all the hours that they want are taking home more money, which is great. What's the cost? You've priced some people out of the labor market. Some people are not going to be able to get all the hours of work they want if public policy forces up wages because employers can't pay that much, right? When wages go up, employers economize on labor. Just like when the price of anything goes up, people reduce their consumption of it. Some people might not be able to find work at all if you find them, if you raise the minimum wage. So now you have a difficult ethical trade-off to make. Is it okay to privilege those workers who are fortunate enough to get a job at a higher minimum wage against those who no longer are able to get all the hours of work that they want at the higher minimum wage. So if you want to find policies that lift all boats, perhaps that doesn't seem like such an attractive option since the minimum wage has such differential effects on those who are fortunate enough to find a job versus those who are not. So reasonable people can disagree about that, but I think that it's important that two people should be able to look at the same policy and come to more or less the same conclusion about the effects of the policy. An economist who's pro-minimum wage hike and an economist who's anti-minimum wage hike ideally should be able to consider a given minimum wage hike and agree about what the actual consequences are. What will be the effect on the total amount of hours worked by workers? What will be the effect on the total wage bill, right? The total amount of wages, dollars that workers are bringing home? What will be the effect on unemployment or disemployment? Ideally, we would be able to agree on those things, and then we could have our moral disagreements about what those facts mean. But in order to get there, we need an appreciation for basic economics. And unfortunately, I just don't think that we're there yet. 
Yep, Alexander Salter. You bring up the minimum wage, so let's dovetail where we started with this. Do we need to have a basic conversation on labor, especially you know hourly wages, especially entry level jobs, especially service sector kind of stuff? Because we have a service sector economy. We need to kind. Of, that's a whole other topic, but we kind of haven't come to terms with the fact we have a service sector economy yet. Do we need to have a discussion just on basic labor? Because we just go to things like minimum wage or hourly employee or salaried or whatever, and we don't talk about worth of labor or how people now have options. I think the days of you work one job 40 years and retire, I think that's probably gone for just about everybody anymore. I think you're going to have to patchwork your labor career one way or the other, whether it's you know multiple jobs or side hustles or whatever. Do we need to change how we talk about labor a little bit as part of this economic stuff we're talking about? I think that we need to focus elsewhere in the labor conversation. So it's interesting that we talked about the minimum wage since uh, that's a very popular example. But in many ways, I think it's one that we actually emphasize a little bit too much. What are the greatest hindrances to people being able to flourish and find meaningful work? I do think the minimum wage is a barrier, but I don't think it's the main barrier. The vast majority of the U.S. labor force is employed at a wage significantly higher than the federal minimum wage. So that price, $7.50 an hour or whatever the federal minimum wage is, isn't terribly relevant to most labor markets. But you look at what's happening. You have, for example, this belief that all these otherwise entry-level and specialized jobs now seem to require a college degree. How did that come to be the case? How did it come to be the case that you need a four-year college degree to do an entry-level job in human resources or marketing or even some accountancy work? That didn't used to be the case. And it's not the case that what we're teaching our students is so much newer and more sophisticated that we're getting them more knowledge. What's happened is that we've turned American education into a degree mill, a rat race, right? An arms race in many ways where everybody has to quote unquote, keep up with the Joneses. So because everybody else has a college degree, you need a college degree too. Even if the line of work that you want to go into is not conducive to having that university background. So now you spent four years and $100,000 just getting a piece of paper that makes you eligible for a job that a generation ago you could have had straight out of high school. So already you're at a material disadvantage. We need to pay much more attention to freeing up labor markets so that people are not burdened by the need to pursue arbitrary credentials just to find meaningful work. It's policies like that that I think are going to make much more of a difference for helping real people improve real lives and debates over whether the minimum wage at the federal level should be $7.50 an hour or, or $8.50 an hour. I think that in many ways, those are peripheral. Yeah, it's been amazing to watch, too, how a lot of like the fast food places out for me, they're offering starting usually double that, if not more. Mm. Right now, it's funny how <laughs> it's almost taken it kind of off the table because so they just need labor so badly, how fast that narrative changed the last couple of years. But there you go. That's what we've been talking about the philosophy of economics and then the practicum of economics. When they need labor, boy, those wages go up real fast on those offers to get more labor in, don't they? I mean, it's a practical example. Supply and demand, supply and demand. It's, it's something people see every day and it's like, okay, this is economics and it's right in front of you when you go through the drive-thru and you see those please, please hire or we're hiring or you see those really, I, I saw it went viral a while back, what Bucky's is paying their you know janitorial staff. I've worked janitorial. I'm glad they're getting money, but people are like, why are you making money? It's like, well, have you ever done that job? It's hard to get folks. That's a practical thing with economics. People actually need to pay attention to and think about when they see it though, isn't it? It is. People need to remember that everyone has options. Everyone has some alternative. 
The problem is that many times those alternatives are not terribly attractive. Many of those alternatives make it difficult to leave a flourishing life. And we can and should address that using policy, I think. But the point is, if you have a massively expanding economy and people have options of where to work, that's going to increase the demand for labor. More demand for labor means all else being equal, higher wages and probably higher other forms of compensation too. You get a free lunch while you're working your shift. You might get benefits at a job that you previously didn't get benefits for. So we need to keep in mind that there are economic forces at work balancing supply and demand. And many times those forces explicitly work out in ways that are rewarding to labor. One of the narratives that you hear in the public square all the time is that capitalism is a system that benefits capital at the expense of labor. Well, labor actually earns two thirds of the national income. So I think that you're gonna have to go back and revisit that assumption. We can and should be concerned about those who are the least among us. We can and should be concerned with giving those who are on the lower rungs of the ladder a helping hand. But at the same time, we cannot blind ourselves from the normal working of economic forces, ordinary supply and demand in doing those things. It's one of the reasons that I and many other economists are believers in a private property market-based economy, because we believe that this is the best system in human experience, the best system yet devised for actually helping people improve their circumstances. Yeah, the book is The Political Economy of Distributism. Thank you for putting a B against a T. That's great for my hillbilly accent. Appreciate that. Property, <laughs> liberty, and the common good. Alexander Salter, our good friend. Let folks know where they can find the book where you're going to be. You're going to be all over the place promoting it. Let them know how to keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Here, there, and everywhere. The book is published by Catholic University of America Press. You can find it at their website. You can find it on Amazon. And you can even find a link at my personal website, which is www.awsalter.com. All of my writing is at my website, popular and scholarly, all of my media appearances. So I'll be putting a link to this fine show up there uh, as, soon as, as soon as it goes out. And I would be happy to hear from any of your listeners. I love talking about these ideas, so please don't be shy. Yep, I'll be uh, the Baptist that's happily reading about Catholic social theory. That'll be fun. Always good talking to you, sir. Appreciate your time today. God bless, and good luck to your Mountaineers, except when they're playing the Red Raiders. Fair enough. Take care, sir. <laughs> Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. 
Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurtel Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, it's hurricane season. Uh, Idalia has gone through the Big Bend area of Florida and the southeast. Thankfully, doesn't look as bad as it could have been, although there was still deaths, flooding, and destruction. As always, as we advocate on this program, don't give to those big national organizations. Find some local folks that are reputable if you want to give money. Send items. You can always send non-perishable items. Folks always need things like uh, boxed food, socks, things like that. Make sure you give if you can. Make sure you give if you can. Also, there's been some flooding in West Virginia that wasn't related to the um, hurricane. You can also look into giving there. But since it's hurricane season and it looks like it's going to be an active one, we already have another one rolling through uh, into the Caribbean that may or may not get to the U.S. It re-ups one of my pet peeves. I put it on the substack. Uh, hertel.substack.com. Make sure you're subscribed. It's completely free to subscribe. I re-up something I wrote a while ago because it's one of my pet peeves. One of the dumbest things in the universe is that the weather channels and national news media outlets send people to stand out in the hurricane to show us that it's rainy and windy. What functional adult does not know it's rainy and windy? Why are we continuing to sacrificing these poor people to the weather gods? Especially now, they have these really cool graphics where they can show storm surge. They can put it right inside of existing structures. They can show it in your home, how high the water rises and how fast. They can overlay it onto a city street, things like this. We have enough technology. Please, for the love of God, quit sending these poor reporters out into bad weather because it also winds up looking ridiculous. I don't want to call them out. I don't want to pick on anybody, but they couldn't find enough flooding in the town that I have a home in in North Carolina. So they sent the poor guy down to what is essentially a creek in a low-lying area. Now, this is a known low-lying area, and the creek was up a little bit, but it didn't even get over the sidewalk path. But you got to have running water to do a flooding story. And to his credit, he's going, look, this is nothing. This is no big deal. Matthew came through here. There was 20 feet of water right here, that sort of thing. But you get yourself in bad situations, like when Jim Cantore's got a helmet on leaning into the wind and a firefighter in shorts and a T-shirt does a cartwheel behind him. Or you remember the lady that was trying to do the report from the rowboat and people just walked by because the water was only ankle deep, just enough to float the rowboat. They end up looking stupid. Listen, we don't need to put people in danger. One stray splinter of wood could kill somebody in storms like that. Stop doing it. We don't need to see it. You don't need the viral hits. Everybody else is doing it anyway. There's a better way to cover hurricanes, folks. And we're going to keep having hurricanes and natural disasters and other things 
keep our reporters safe, don't make them look dumb on TV, and give us better coverage anyway. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we are doomed to constantly debate school book curriculum and what is and isn't appropriate. How do I know that? I'm 43 years old and we've been debating it all my life. My dad's 76, spent his entire year in education. He debated it all his life. And like he jokes, he's like, yeah, this is nothing. You should have seen it in the late 60s when he was coming up. Jill Jacobson isn't that old, but she sees what's going on now. She's out at Boston Law, at Boston College. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you on the program today. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you. You're writing for the Dallas Morning News here. Let, let's let's start a little big picture because everybody's kind of look. These ramparts and trenches are well worn out. Everybody knows where everybody's fighting on this sort of thing. There's a lot of different variations on this. They're going to call this the redrag down in Texas. Start with the nomenclature though, because we don't get the nomenclature on these things right. The rest of it gets in the weeds really, really quickly, doesn't it? So the Texas Reader Act has three main parts. The first part is that it's a blanket prohibition of sexually explicit titles in Texas public schools. The second requires parental consent for sexually relevant titles, things that don't rise to the level of obscenity, but books that still have some sexual content. And the third portion is a required rating system whereby vendors who wish to sell books in Texas public schools must assign a rating to every title that has sexual content um, that they wish to, to sell to the school system. Here's the thing, though. We joke about it, but, you know, the, the old Stewart standard, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, I'll know obscenity when I see it. Um, that's part of it. You also touched on your piece. You know, obviously, every family has different family values, so that'll change. You know, there's parts of the King James Version of the Bible that wouldn't make most of these obscenity things just because of the language differences. Shakespeare gets caught in some of this. The other part of this, though, you just touched on, but I think it's worth explaining. There is a big legal difference, and we are talking about legalities here, between what is the actual curriculum and then what's just available in the school system, whether in the library, a book fair, additional reading list, so on and so forth, and then what a kid can read outside of the school system. We do need to differentiate between those three things because that is where you start getting into things like people want to throw around freedom of speech and censorship. Well, you got to get those three categories straight first, don't you? Yeah, certainly. I think that's the root of a lot of confusion around so-called book bans, which is that ultimately it's a question of who decides, right? Who decides what our children are reading in schools? It's very clear that parents can decide to give their children any reading material that they wish in their own homes. When taxpayer money is used to purchase these books and fund the formal teaching of the titles, that's when it becomes a different conversation. And I think those two narratives tend to get combined under the umbrella of so-called book bans when they're really separate debates. Uh, and then there's the part, and you just mentioned it, parents are going to be able to get these books elsewhere. Everybody's got Amazon, right? Everybody's got a Barnes and Noble or whatever the case may be. Why do we conflate it? And I know we do it because it's just easier on the internet to throw around words like censorship or First Amendment or whatever, but 
when we're actually talking about education, why do people have such a hard time breaking it down? Because there is what the school does and there is what the parents do through the parent associations, parent teacher, whatever the case may be. And then you have the overlapping part that the government is a part of the school system because they oversee public education in America. That's a lot of cross streams to try to wade through before you even get to the issue at hand, which is already a hot button to start with. Certainly. I think one factor is that there are just so many of these pieces of legislation floating around. I mean, they are really storming the nation. Some are narrow, like Texas's, and they just address sexual content. Some address historical content, certain health topics. I mean, there are a host of, of these bills, and they all have their own nuances. So I think that is a source of some complexity. Another source of complexity, and, and probably a reason for the hyperbole, is that People have varying levels of trust and faith in the government to design these curriculums. There is a large camp of Americans who are more than fine with devolving curriculum design completely to school administrators and teachers. And there's another camp, increasingly so, that are, are uncomfortable with that when it comes to these hot button issues. Yeah, Jill Jacobson joining us. This gets to another issue that parallels this is... You just talked about it. You mentioned it in your piece and go into a little bit of detail. The hyperbole of it makes all this worse. It's a complicating factor on top of all the other. But this is the human one that we have the most control over, the, the hyperbole of it. When you get to the core of the problems in the school system, parents, teachers, students, that's the that's the three legs of the stool that hold up education. And those relationships between those threes are broken right now. Now, we know it's because of the administrative state. We know it's because of the government issues of it, all these other things. When you have hyperbole, though, and then you have this legal issue on the side of it, there's no way for those three people, those three groups of people to work together effectively. And when you're talking about something like sexually touchy stuff, a controversial subject that needs to be raised in school that a parent is trusting a teacher to handle with their child, that's really the core problem here. And then the hyperbole and all this other stuff really exacerbated, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. I think in some circumstances, parents are being very uh, accurate in their protests. What was the impetus for this piece of legislation in Texas were parents. And we see videos going viral of parents going to school board meetings and reading some of the titles that are being being read to their children in school. And it is shocking to see. On the flip side, we see other interest groups from the community, like the booksellers, the plaintiffs in this case, coming forward with the opposite argument, um, that these titles are really benign and it's not worth sort of the precedent that it's setting. The law doesn't do a real great job with gray area sometimes, right? Because law has to be written in black and white. And then lawyers or people trying to be a lawyer like you, that's what you deal with. How do you interpret the black and white of the law to all the gray area, right? You talk about it with this particular piece of legislation. Wear it out, though, is kind of the core of the legal fight here is setting some kind of a benchmark of what is and isn't explicit, what is and isn't allowed, what is and who gets to set that benchmark. Is that kind of the heart of the legal arguments here? So interestingly enough, as I mentioned, there are three parts of this bill, right? The first two address what is sexually explicit and what is um, sexually relevant. The third portion is the rating system, 
where vendors provide a rating and then the state puts it up on its website, the Texas Education Agency website. And if they disagree with the vendor provided rating, they can actually override it and include their own rating. That third portion is really at the heart of this legal debate because the plaintiffs allege that it constitutes compelled speech. Now, here's the thing with the rating system, because this is probably the part of this that people can get their heads around the most. Because, look, we've had movie rating systems since, you know, the early 80s. We have video game rating systems now that's pretty well established. I'm old enough to remember Tipper Gore making us put parental advisory on all that rap music that was going to ruin everybody and destroy the country 30 years ago. But that worked out OK. Maybe it did. And we'll see how that works out. That's the part everybody can get their head around. Right. Why is that so contentious? Because it would seem like that's the part people are already pretty used to in other areas of it. I know why the booksellers are saying, like, look, we can't even go through all this stuff we wanted to. It's just too much material. Why is it such a point of contention, the part that people probably understand the best? Sure. So book vendors providing ratings on the explicitness of their titles, that in and of itself is fine. It's when the government supersedes the rating and includes their own because the First Amendment exists to protect our speech, right? But it also exists to prevent the government from compelling speech, from forcing us to say something that we don't wish to say. And when booksellers provide these ratings and then the government overrides them, all the while the public thinks that these vendors are providing the ratings, despite it perhaps being much different than the rating that they submitted, that is government compelled speech according to plaintiffs. Now, the defendants, the state of Texas say that it's the cost of doing business. If you want to be a vendor in, in the Texas public school system, then you will submit to this rating system. And, and that is sort of the necessary evil that we have to undertake to protect children from these titles. Um, and we will see which side the court comes out on that front. Yeah, Jill Jacobson joining us. I, I always want to take a step back when we're dealing with hot button issues like this, because there's actually two parts to these. We're talking about the legal arguments now, but they're legally arguing over a piece of legislation. Does this kind of legislation need to be better written or at least tightly written or maybe more focused? Because it does seem like a lot of these hot button cultural issues, we've got a bit of a pattern here. They can push it through, especially a state like Texas, which is, of course, very Republican and has a lot of power on one side of the political aisle. They can shove this stuff through. Maybe they're shoving some of this stuff through too fast and not actually physically writing the actual letter of the law adequately in the first place. We're arguing over the legal aspect of it, but the law can just work on what's in the legislative. Are we overlooking the actual legislation as it's written and not giving that enough scrutiny to start with? Even on something that you agree with, you still got to write it correctly, right? Surely. So writing foolproof legislation, it, it should be a given, right? But more often than not, we are seeing the courts now become a battleground for political issues. Instead of hashing it out in the court of public opinion or in the legislature, we are mounting legal challenges, hoping to dismantle it that way, sort of irrespective of the merits oftentimes. What's interesting about Texas's bill is that it's far more narrow than most quote unquote, book bans. It doesn't involve history. It doesn't criminalize anyone. There are no sort of blanket prohibitions in wider society based on age. This really is legislative guardrailing for school curriculum exclusively. 
Jill Jacobson joining us. This is really an argument over gatekeeping when you get down to the core of it. Now, once you talk about gatekeeping children, people get really, really emotional about it because we get emotional about their kids, right? But it is a gatekeeping issue. What do you think the future of this is going to be? Because just about every state in some form or fashion is going to wind up doing some kind of legislation about this, which means every time you legislate it, it's going to get litigated. Are we just going to be stuck in a loop for a while of the cycle of legislate, litigate, lather, rinse, repeat? What do you see the future of this being going forward for at least the next few years? I think what's needed is a public referendum on the role of the government in public education. I remember when we were younger, the opinion was sort of that the government was to play a role in education insofar as they taught history and hard sciences and math. And it was really that your cultural and moral compass was to be calibrated at home or in your neighborhood or at your church. Those things were sort of outside the public domain and increasingly they're being brought into the public domain. These book bans, I think, are testament to the fact that much of the country is not okay with that. So hopefully we can come to some democratic consensus on what the proper role is. And I think that will help curtail a lot of this. Yeah, Jill Jacobson joining us. One other thing I want to talk about this, because I think it's going to get lost in this. These are vendors that are bringing this suit forward. It's got to be mentioned, even though people are focusing on the kids and obscenity and all this and the, the culture war aspect to this. Education is really big business in America now. When you really look at it from the vendor side and what they're saying and the state saying this is the cost of doing business, this is very big business being a vendor. And whether it's a book vendor or educational materials, I know my father had a degree and one of his many degrees was in curriculum. So his one of his summer side hustles was he would, you know, check the new textbooks coming out right this is a big business. Folks are just now becoming, and COVID really changes. They understand that education is a business now. Lawsuits like this, while we're looking at the top line item of censorship and things like that, do we also need to have a better awareness that there's a lot of business and it's going to be almost like business style litigation, a lot of these things going forward? We need to have a little bit better understanding of that and how the law plays into that as well, because that's a big part of education now. It certainly is. I'm not so sure it's as influential in the litigation itself as it is the existence of the litigation in the first place. The reality is that these companies have vast resources to bring suits that they might not otherwise if it wasn't so lucrative. There's a lot of money on the line for them. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, well said there. Jill Jacobson. This is fascinating because, again, I, I'm half joking about it, but it seems like we've always been arguing about this. I think we're always going to argue about this because everybody's going to have their take on it. It's good to have the perspective on it. We're going to link to the entire piece in the Dallas Morning News. Let folks know where they can follow you, what else you have going on, how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel on whatever we're going to argue about next time, my friend. Sure. I'm Jill C. Jacobson on Twitter, and thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, really appreciate it. We will have you back. You enjoy Boston, and we'll talk soon, my friend. Bye. Yes, ma'am.
Welcome back to Hertel. Let's end on a good note. This one came in uh, via one of our Twitter friends. No, we're not going to call it X. Simplify Virginia, good friend of the program. How you doing, Gunny? Hopefully listening to this on his morning walks or while he's eating food around his pool. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, the Virginia pilot in 2009, Matt Ganyard, the former high school standout with no football experience, got an email saying he'd been cut from the Virginia football team's tryouts as a walk-on. Why try out for a college team with no experience? The answer was simple for Ganyard. He said, kicking looked easy. And then he joked, I found out it was actually quite hard. He combined his soccer skills with tips from YouTube, but was ultimately cut. He still has a screenshot of the email he received telling him he'd been cut. And it even served as his iPad screensaver for a few years. Some injuries sustained during his time playing club-level soccer prevented Ganyard from ever trying out again. So he continued his time at UVA as only a student and earned a degree in 2011. More than a decade later, Ganyard's lacing up his cleats as a member of the UVA football team when it kicks off its regular season Saturday against Tennessee from 2011 to 2022. Ganyard was active member of the United States Marine Corps, including time as a Cobra helicopter pilot. He followed in the footsteps of his father, who was a 28-year Marine fighter pilot in his own right. During his time serving, kicking essentially became a hobby for Ganyard. Ganyard began to think about what to do after his time with the Marines ended. He said business school was a natural pivot because he could add some academic credibility to the leadership experience he gained in the Corps. While looking at potential schools for a master's degree, he also realized he might be able to take another crack at kicking. I realized after looking into a lot of the NCA rules, there was this weird rule that essentially your eligibility clock freezes when you go on active service. The fifth year essentially got paused when I went on active duty after graduation, and from there it was frozen until I went off active duty. So even though it was a decade later, I kept thinking, okay, maybe I could thread this needle and make this happen. If I could get a team in a university to kind of sign off on the idea. He said he initially pitched the idea of going for the team to Virginia special team analysis. Drew Meyer, quote, I realized after looking into a lot of the rules, the NCA, there was this real world that you could do this. I didn't have any high school film, he said, till about three weeks ago. I'd never put on a helmet or pads before, so I didn't have anything to really go off besides, hey, I have some of these high school recruiting camps. I would go to these camps just to get the exposure and try to simulate some of the pressure I wasn't able to get that I'd never had in the in-game experience. Last year, when Gaynard enrolled in the UVA Darden School of Business, the door appeared shut. At this point, I looked at it and said, is it done? I, it was pretty unfortunate, Gaynard said. I had everything seemingly lined up only to be kind of shut down the last minute, but I kind of stayed at it. After the 2022 season came and went, Gaynard was officially out of eligibility, but he gave it one last shot, reaching out to Myers again, this time asking if UVA would entertain applying for an NCAA waiver that would grant him an extra year of eligibility. Ganyard said the waiver was initially denied, but subsequent appeal won just before the fall camp started, making his wish finally come true. Quote, we found out about it four days before the camp and the appeal went through. Next thing you know, I'm finishing my summer internship and getting a physical with an NCAA football team, and here we are. So it's quite the fortuitous ending of a long, drawn-out story. Fun's just getting started. Naturally, some of his teammates were shocked when he introduced himself and told everybody he was 34-year-old with two kids. Gainer said in his short term with the team, he quickly earned nicknames, including Pop Pop, Grandpa, and Uncle Matt. I think they realized the past three weeks I'm just another guy just with a little more life experience, Gainer said. At the end of the day, I'm just another guy here to try to help the team succeed on the field. And so that, to me, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters, contributing in the field and in the locker room. It also shows one of his tweets where he says, 16 years later, the dream lives on. He's in his Wahoo uniform. It's been a 16-year journey for Gainer. He makes sure to sing the praises of his wife, Marie, for helping him along each step of the way. He said the thing he's most proud of is his persistence to keep going. He can't wait to step out on a field packed full 
against Tennessee and Nashville. Quote, I don't think it's fully going to hit me until you're in the game day environment. I think the practice environment and being part of the team is settled in. I think once we step out on the grass in Nissan Stadium in Nashville, I think it'll hit, and I'll enjoy every second of it. That's out of the Virginia pilot. We will link to it. Good for him. Love that story. Always happy to see vets making good back in the quote-unquote real world when they get done with their active duty time. Appreciate our friend in Virginia bringing this one to our attention. That'll do it for Herd Tell. As always, however you're listening or watching this program, make sure you're subscribing, following, whatever platform you're using, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We're getting good numbers from them now. Make sure you let us know how you're watching so we can continue to cater the program to your needs. We've changed a few things we do platforming-wise. The YouTube channel's back up and running strong. Lots of new videos, including all the Good Talk segments. Those are just the interviews in glorious HD. If you just really, really want to see what we all look like, it's on the YouTube channel. Getting fantastic numbers. Uh, the one we did on Appalachian Education with Dr. Bob did really good numbers. Our uh, dead president's one with Sarah Stook did outstanding numbers, especially over in the UK. Worldwide audience, we appreciate y'all. Really, thank you very much. Remember, we don't do advertising outside of our own social media. So if you do us a favor, share us on your social media, including a link. We'd love to get new folks in, and we appreciate you bringing them in. Substack is the one-stop shop for all this. Heard tell show at substack.com. Make sure you check that out. Always find us on Twitter. I'm at Four for the Fire, and all our guests, their Twitter and other social media is on the screen graphics and in the links. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We look forward to talking to you again next time for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.